I can see where someone truly listening to the words of Jesus in these texts might shudder a bit. Because, after all, there are many of us who have been through the experience of divorce. We have divorced a spouse or been divorced. We have divorced persons in our circle of family and friends. Some of us have been remarried to people who were divorced. And when we read these words of Jesus that seem to make us or our loved ones sound like little more than a pack of condemned sinners, we naturally cringe or want to run away. I think the cringing is understandable, but I also believe that Jesus offers us words here that are designed to help us rather than to hurt us. I know the temptation to run away is strong, but we must not run away from the sharp words of Jesus here because in these words of challenge are also a profound encouragement to us, an encouragement needed in our own lives and in the life of our society and culture, particularly at this time, whatever our marital status may now be. To put it in a nutshell, Jesus speaks of the consequences of divorce in order to drive us toward the benefits of keeping our promises. Let me say that again. Jesus speaks very sharply about the consequences of divorce in order to drive us into the arms of blessing God offers us when we keep our promises. Why are promises so very important? Why are they so important? Because they are the building blocks of trust. And trust is the foundation for living in covenant. And covenant is the optimal environment for human flourishing. Let me just unpack those ideas for you today and try and show you what I mean. A husband dares to share his most vulnerable feelings with his spouse, or a wife with her husband, because they trust that that other person is not going to take those vulnerable feelings and share them with the whole neighborhood or use them against them or mock them and hurt them with those revelations. A little girl allows her dad to throw her up in the air again and again because she absolutely trusts that he would never intentionally do anything to abuse her, to hurt her, drop her. In fact, my own kids have leapt off of high objects and just and after they were in midair yelled, hey, dad, <laughs> because they were so sure that their father uh, was trustworthy. A businessman tells his plans to a a colleague, because he trusts that this partner would never intentionally take that idea uh, and go off, steal it, make money for himself with, with it. A wife might consent to give up her job uh, after a very successful career and stay home and raise the kids because she trusts that her husband is not going to run off with that uh, young gal at the office, leaving her destitute, having abandoned her career path. Why do people trust as they do? Trust is the foundation of so many things. 
What is it that makes us trust people the way we do? Well, they trust because at some point, the other person extended a promise to them which they believed. I will be your faithful work partner. I will be your faithful spouse. I will be your faithful friend. At some point, some person said, in words or in action, I am committed to you. (laughs) I am really here for you. Now, by commitment, uh, author Lou Smead suggests, they mean a promise that I will be both consistent and caring. Commitment is the promise to be both consistent and caring. Now, you and I do not, and in fact could not, offer that kind of commitment to just anybody. To the mailman, for example, I am merely consistent. Every day, actually, it's a male woman. Uh, She shows up, she puts the mail in our box, and I consistently remove the mail so there's space for the next time she shows up. Uh, I am very consistent in my commitment. I am not, however, caring in my commitment. Uh, In other words, she may come to that mailbox with a lot of pain in her life, a lot of struggle. I'm not there to hear the stories and to provide the support that she may need. I'm consistent but not caring. On the other hand, I am reasonably caring to that woman that I took uh, and bought lunch for down in the city, the homeless woman who needed my help on that particular day. That was a very caring act. She experienced it, seemed, in that particular way. But I'm not consistent because I've never done it again. I have never walked down that sidewalk, found her again, and taken her out for another meal. I am simply caring without consistency. But there are some people in my life, uh, my family, my closest friends, uh, my Uh, near work partners, uh, to whom I make a promise to be both consistent and caring. I say that I will be consistently there for them in body. I'll show up again tomorrow, and I will be caring deeply for them in heart. Even when I mess up, and I do, I will get back up and try once again to be more consistent and more caring. How many of you have got somebody to whom you've made that kind of commitment in your life? Okay, now when they in return make that kind of commitment to you, it is establishing a sacred circle that the Bible calls a covenant, a sacred bond of trust. Why are covenants so important? Why are making and keeping these kinds of mutual covenants so very important? The answer is because God has given covenants to us as the most optimal circle for safety, health, and growth to be experienced. It is within these sacred circles that we are most free to make mistakes, to reveal who we are, to get back up on the horse again, to find the support we need that allows for human flourishing. The Bible, in fact, teaches that the world began in a circle of covenant, in that sacred bond of trust. The Bible teaches that until sin broke the original trust, human beings enjoyed a covenant relationship with God 
and with one another. That's what the first couple of chapters of Genesis are all about. That covenant was marked by faithful consistency. We see that. Uh, Human beings and God walked in the garden day after day after day together consistently. And it was also marked by intimate caring. Uh, We're told that there was a wonderful, transparent relationship between God and between human beings. In fact, one of the ways the Bible describes that intimate caring is by saying that the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Perfect circle of trust. Right? You get this? The circle of trust. Now, our marriages and our best friendships and our closest work partnerships and our family relationships are all means by which we seek or are invited to seek to recover that original experience. Human beings had planted deeply within them an experience of living in that sacred circle so so optimal for life and health and growth and safety that poets called it paradise. And, 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 And all of our lives, we have been trying at some level to get back into that circle, to, to, to recover that original experience of an environment in which the greatest kind of safety, health, and growth could be experienced. And just as it was never God's desire that that original circle, that covenant be broken, so it is not God's desire to see any of the subsequent kinds of circles of covenant violated. Um, It is not God's desire to see these things torn asunder. That particular notion, especially as it relates to the marriage covenant, has been severely degraded in our time. And in fact, that degradation or that loss of the primacy and the importance for individuals and for an entire society of covenant was already being lost in Jesus' time. Um, In fact, that's the background to the teaching Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel and then again in chapter 19. For you see, when Jesus declares there, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. He was calling into mind a very well-known statute in the Jewish law that dated way back to Deuteronomy chapter 24 during the Mosaic period. That statute said that a man could give his, his wife a writ of divorce under very rare circumstances. And that is if he found something indecent in her. I'm gonna, that's the, word, the phrase I want you to focus on for a moment. Something indecent in this other person. A generation or so before Christ's birth, a prominent rabbi by the name of Hillel had popularized the idea that the phrase something indecent meant anything about one's wife that did not accord with your comfort or pleasure as a husband. In the ancient times, divorce had been very hard. You had to have a writ. It had to be based on a very egregious problem in the marriage for the the covenant to be dissolved. 
But by the time of Jesus, this popular notion uh, was all across the culture that a husband could divorce his wife, throw her out of his house without a penny of spousal support for the simple reason that she no longer pleased him sexually or pampered him personally or put up with all of his character flaws. And if a husband just felt like I can get better sex elsewhere, I can get somebody that, that, that pampers me better elsewhere, I can get somebody that will not nail me for these flaws and faults elsewhere, I divorce thee, I divorce thee, I divorce thee, you're out. Now, I don't imagine anybody would ever divorce today because they were sexually attracted elsewhere or felt they could be better pampered elsewhere. Right, or because they got finally tired of their spouse pointing out their character flaws. But people divorce today for lesser things. Even highly responsible people. Um, Even some of us get to a point in our marriage where because of sexual issues or lifestyle issues or character issues, we get so hurt, so embittered, so angry, so hardened that we get to thinking, you know, when I got married, I was looking for an ideal. Now it's an ordeal. I think I want a new deal. (laughs) Right? 50% of the couples that I marry It ends this way. And increasingly now, even for folks that have made it many, many years together, finally give up. What does Jesus say about all this? Is there there ever any legitimate grounds for divorce where Jesus is concerned? Well, in our passage for this morning, Jesus cites at least one instance that might be a condition. He, he speaks of marital unfaithfulness. Um, although he makes it really clear, that's God's desire. Do not separate what God has joined together, but a loophole for marital unfaithfulness. In fact, the Greek word at the root of what Jesus says there is actually referring to sexual infidelity. Uh, if your partner steps out on you, you've got grounds for divorce. Now, I've seen couples move past sexual infidelity. Um, It's it's an awesome thing when someone can. Uh, I've seen couples use that terrible breakdown of trust um, to look deeply into their own hearts, to find God's grace in a fresh way, to establish a new kind of understanding and a a fresh sort of covenant. I've seen that happen. But even Jesus acknowledges that an adulterous affair can cause the death of trust at a level that it's very difficult to resurrect in this life. Okay, God can do anything, right? But Jesus didn't resurrect everybody that died around him. Uh, he promised to resurrect every, everyone in the end, but sometimes 
the death of trust is so deep that maybe a, a lasting covenant in, in this life with that between these two people isn't going to happen. Are, are there any other forms of marital unfaithfulness that might fit within Christ's vision of legitimate grounds for divorce? Are there? Um, I have to tell you that I think he was talking about sexual infidelity there. As a pastor, I, 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 I have wondered about other kinds of marital unfaithfulness. I, I've seen situations where there's just such prolonged physical abuse where it just so violates God's care for the sanctity of life, that I, that I could understand divorce there um, as being within the bounds of Jesus' intentions. Uh, I've seen situations where it's substance addiction, uh, where they are eff- effectively unfaithful. They're actually, in, they're, they're, they're sleeping with a substance. That's their primary relationship now, uh, rather than the, the, the spouse. Or where chronic dishonesty or abandonment so killed the capacity for trust between a couple that it felt to me like a death had already parted them. Death, do us part, had already happened uh, because of these kinds of things. I I think there are times when a person falls on his or her knees before God and just says, Lord, forgive me. Everything in me wants you to resurrect this. I've asked you to. I'm open to it. I just, but I'm dead. I'm just dead in my capacity uh, to trust any longer. And I think God hears those confessions. I think the God of mercy hears us when we're weak, when, we, when we're brokenhearted, when we just don't know how, how, to, how to go on. And, and I believe that, that, that even for folks who go into divorce, God's grace is not done, that he is still there for us, that he still longs to, to lift us up and to, and to give us new life. Um, but... But I also want to say that as I read the Bible, it is very clear to me that that is not a road he wants us to walk down uh, casually or quickly um, by any stretch of the imagination. It's certainly not without carefully considering two very severe consequences of breaking the marriage covenant that Jesus lays out. Um, in other words, he may forgive, he may restore, he may give us new life and love, praise God for his grace, but it's not his desire that it happen at all and for the following reasons. In the first place, Jesus challenges us to consider the impact that disposing of a marriage, disposing of somebody else, has on that person and those that they'll relate to in the future. Now I recognize that is the last worry that's on our minds when we're going off the divorce court. You know, when we're divorcing a spouse, a person's divorcing a spouse, that person is filled with such hurt or such hardness after all of what they've experienced in the way of suffering at the hands of that other person that the last thing they're thinking about is how will the other people do after we're divorced? You know, although I see that. I see sometimes that concern. But as Christians, it has to be our concern if we were ever in that position Because Jesus calls us to think of our neighbors. As I said last week, love is not about being mushy and gushy. It's about willing the good of the other. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says that when you push a partner of promise away from you, when you let the circle be broken and you push somebody else out of it and say, I will no longer be in it with you, you adulterate them. 
you adulterate them. Uh, that word adulterate literally means to taint. To adulterate is to taint. It means to discolor, to defile, or to degrade the purity of a substance. And the substance is the soul in a marriage. It's that part of us that is most open to love, that is vulnerable and capable in the right circumstances of daring trust and hope. And when we push somebody out of the circle, we taint the soul of that other person in a lasting way, even if they've brought it on themselves. Um, In a sense, we drag that person's soul out of the garden of growth and possibility, or we push that person out, or we allow them out of that circle of growth and possibility into the mud of rejection and condemnation and failure, and, and we taint the heart of a child of God in a way that's gonna have enduring implications for that person. Um, And it's going to make it harder for them to trust and hope and love in the future, which is why even people that choose divorce for themselves have a much higher incidence of failure in the second marriage and even higher in the third because every time the circle is broken, the tainting, the adulterating goes deeper and it makes us less able to really deeply bond. Um, Hallelujah for the exceptions to this, to those who have overcome, but this is part of what Jesus is getting at here. And, And this tainting leaks, right? Into the hearts of the kids, the souls of the kids, and the friends and the families. I'm a child of divorce. Um, you know, did I, get, did I move on? Yeah, you know, I went on, like you did, many of you who've been in this place. Do we still feel the tainting in some level, the pain? Yeah, we do. All of our lives. Again, thank God for his grace. Thank God for his grace. The injury of divorce taints not just the kids, the the in-laws, the friendship circle. The injury of divorce, says Jesus, goes to our own hearts as well. And and I think that the broken covenant, the second reason to to think carefully before breaking the covenant is to think about the damage such breaking is going to do to you. In his book, Caring and Commitment, Lewis Smead's Fuller Seminary Ethicist suggests that one of the principal reasons that people leave covenants is because our self-maximizer tells us to. And and I think we live in a world today where the voice of the self-maximizer is louder than any time in human history. And there's no culture more than America where that self-maximizing voice, that rugged individualism is louder. Our self-maximizer, says Smeeds, is that voice which whispers exciting things to me about my untested capacity to feel things I have never felt before, experience things I have never experienced, become things I've only dreamt about becoming. If I can only get away from this person, life's gonna be so fantastic. You recognize that voice? Even if we don't actually do it. Does that voice ever come up in you? Oh, wow, the sex would be better. The, the, um, the pampering would be more. Uh, this person wouldn't be ragging on me. 
if I could just get away from this person and go into some new relationship. And yet, says Smeeds, that voice is often a very foolish one. Not only because the next relationship is going to carry its own challenges, but, but because what gives genuine coherence and satisfaction in life is not perpetual diversity. What gives satisfaction and coherence to life is not empty freedom. In the words of psychologist Eric Erickson, what gives true freedom is the capacity to commit ourselves to concrete affiliations, to abide by such commitments, even though they call for significant sacrifice and compromises. The healthiest people in the world are the people who have stayed faithful even when it was hard. You know this to be true. You've experienced it in your own life. When he was thinking about God, the Apostle Paul once wrote in his second letter to his protege, Timothy, that God models for us this extraordinary capacity for commitment and self-sacrifice. And in this particular part of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is going down this litany in which he says, if we do this, then God does this, and if we do this, then God does this. And in the first part of the list, he's talking about all the things that, that if we do it, it, it well, God does it well. If we do this well, God does it well. And then he gets to this part and he says, and if we are not faithful, if we fail, if we blow it, God is actually faithful. If we are not faithful, God remains faithful because he can't be false to himself. In other words, God is faithful to his promises because to do less would be to let down himself. Think of those times when you refused to let down yourself because you'd made a commitment. You stayed up all night long with that sick kid, even though you were sick too and just dying to go to bed. But somehow the process of remaining faithful there grew something in you that's the most beautiful thing about you. Think of those times when you have done your part in the relationship during seasons when the other party was not holding up their ends. Think of those times when you've remained faithful to your mate even when giving into the seduction of another person would have been plenty easy. Think of what good that did for your own character. And so as we plod through months of counseling, as we go through tough seasons of our marriage life, just waiting for the glimmer of new love to be reborn, we don't simply help this other person. We grow into the potential for which God, who is faithful, made us all. Too many people today are walking away from that life. I'm just going to be that blunt about it. We cash in too early. We've gotten too weak in our commitments, in our culture today, uh, because it's so hard to be committed. But growing anything worthwhile is always hard, right? I mean, we know this. Growing a great garden, growing a great golf game, growing a great relationship, growing great anything that's really excellent 
comes with a price, takes sacrifice and perseverance. But it is so worth paying the price in order to avoid the tainting, in order to bring on the blessing that this long obedience can make possible. Let me just be really clear. We as a church have got divorced people in it. (laughs) And we love that person as much as we love the person who's been married 70 years, okay? This is gonna continue to be a church that welcomes broken people. And we're all broken in one way or another, all looking for the grace of God. But let me say at the same time, what if? What if we could become a divorce-free church? Not to say that we won't have a failure rate, but what if we set it as our ambition together to become a divorce-free community of faith? What if none of us ever went into marriage or let our kids or our best friends ever go into marriage thinking that it was going to be a fantasy ride where all my needs would be met? (laughs) That's the image that many people have when they're entering into it. Oh, this person's a wonderful accessory for my life. I really love them, right? What if we went into those relationships and encouraged others as they went into the relationships to expect it to be one of the most glorious and painful courses in character development ever designed? Because marriage is that. It truly is that. We know that. Those of us who have done it for a few years. What if we became honest coaches and our most, the most enthusiastic cheerleaders for the marriages of our loved ones, our friends and, and family members when those marriages were in trouble. So when some guy comes to you as another guy and says, oh, you can't believe she said this and she did that, our response wasn't, yeah, my wife's kind of a witch too. <laughs> what if our response was, and buddy, I know you're going through a difficult time, but you're probably no party to live with either. Because I know you and I know me and we're not perfect either. Get back in there as I'm gonna try and get back there in there in my marriage? What if we got as serious about reading and applying materials aimed at building up loving marriages as we are about digesting sports, technology, trivia, politics, celebrity culture? What if we put as much energy, just as much energy, into into reading up and getting schooled on great relationship building as we do on these much less consequential? I think our politics might get better, actually. I think our our celebrity culture might improve if more of us put our primary focus there. What if we thought no more of investing in weekly counseling to tune up our relationship than we think of going to Lifetime Fitness uh, or some other health club on a regular basis to tune up our bodies? Uh, What if it just became as normal to us as that? Uh, What if all of us who are married to imperfect people, I won't ask you to raise your hand, if you're in that number. What if we just went home today and we looked hard in the mirror and we remembered who they're married to? And what if we went out and rededicated ourselves today to really loving our spouse? That is, willing the good of that spouse till death did us part or a new life and love was born? What if we did that? I think that would be very pleasing 
to the God who is so faithful, even when people aren't. And I think it might do a lot for our families, for our legacy, and for this world in which we live. Would you join me in prayer? God, our Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to go do it, to take a step, a further step, to walk in your way. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.